following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. So welcome to the conclusion of this scripture and this course. We've discussed a lot about the path of initiation, some very elevated concepts, and the orientation that meditators need to be able to comprehend the causes of suffering. It's good to preface with understanding the goal. The goal of this work. Jesus of Nazareth said, Be perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Obviously, as we explore ourselves, we find that we have many imperfections, and that is a source of pain. It can be a, a source of great conflict. It is not easy to emulate the great prophets, their character, their nobility, their aspirations, their ethic, their virtue. But it is possible if we are willing to look in ourselves to what we don't want to see and to face ourselves head on, to have the courage to aspire and to make practical efforts the purpose of today, and in the conclusion of Blavatsky's writings, is a discussion of what is known as the Paramitas. These are very well known within Mahayana Buddhism, especially. They outline principles or steps that we can apply to ourselves psychologically so that we can change. We'll focus on the psychological and the spiritual parameters for awakening our complete and divine potential. Because the paramitas from the Sanskrit perfections are qualities of being, states of perception that we can access when we observe ourselves, watch and meditate. 
part of the paramitas in their practical values that they teach us how to meditate, you know, step by step in a very dynamic and didactic way. Part of the paramitas is that in Buddhism, they teach us about obstacles that we face daily, moment by moment, psychologically. But they also present to us in our interrelationships with humanity, our family life, our marriage, and the work of the inner psyche, different remedies for how to overcome certain obstacles, certain challenges. And part of the purpose of this scripture, at least, and especially this section, is that we're going to synthesize many aspects of different traditions in terms of, in terms of a contemplation, whether it's from Christianity, Buddhism especially, even Hinduism, Islam, Sufism. Because they all teach the same thing. Extemporaneously, different traditions have diverged in their codes, but the heart is in the, in the doctrine itself, in the original scripture. So the paramitas in Sanskrit literally means perfections, that which has reached the other shore to reach the goal, the heights. And lastly, we'll convey how these paramitas, these perfections of being, synthesize the whole path step-by-step step, towards self-realization, initiation, and practical work on ourselves. So you may notice that from this course, we've talked a lot about the tree of life, the synthesis of being, the map of consciousness. We also juxtapose this mysterious glyph with another powerful painting of Christ with the four apostles and two cherubim with a mirror. This painting represents the tree of life in synthesis. And, you know, we've talked about Malkut, the physical body, Yasod, the vital energies, Hod, the astral vehicle or emotional state, Netzach, the mind. The four apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Bible represent these four lower qualities and the four gospels. They also relate to the elements. The four animals are holy creatures of Ezekiel. The bull, the lion, the cherubim or angel, and the eagle. Earth, air, fire, water. What's interesting is that these four apostles stand above two children, two innocent, kind, divine souls. In a sense, these two children hold up a mirror and these children are Tiferet, the human consciousness, the essence. And likewise, Geburah, the divine soul. These two souls, human and divine, are what really concern us with meditation. Because the human soul, concentration, the ability to focus on one thing, is Tiferet. And that will is augmented by perception. Consciousness, Geburah, the quality to receive information, to focus on one thing, and to extract knowledge, real wisdom. That wisdom is our true being, the mirror. It is our true self. That mirror 
is has said the inner spirit the real being the real self above obviously these figures these lower vehicles is christ the highest truth keter hokma bina the father the son and the holy spirit in synthesis this tree of life can show us in the lower seven spheres especially what are known as the essence or heart or the qualities that we need to develop in relation to each of these spheres the lower seven sephiroth and these lower seven sephiroth from hesed to malkut relate to the paramitas so paramitas are attitudes qualities of being that we need to understand about overcoming certain challenges the physical body obviously relates to malkut the earth but as we begin our studies we learn to cultivate generosity to generate the life force of the spirit through transmutation through the work of the sexual force dana the key of charity and love immortal dana generosity charity relates to yesod the power to generate to give life spiritually especially to be generous is to create new circumstances not only of uh, money or physical goods but spiritually it's an attitude compassion and the power of compassion is found in the sexual force how we use that energy because literally it regenerates the psyche when harnessed any be- beginner meditator as they're calming the body and transforming the creative forces of yasod enters a great problem we face great conflict in terms of our life circumstances we are challenged as we're observing ourselves we find that we have anger and pride and fear and laziness and lust because now we're actively looking at ourselves and seeing with the creative force what we really are because that energy empowers the consciousness to be able to watch to observe to understand therefore we need ethics because in relation to hod the emotional center itself we have to develop real harmony shila according to the voice of the silence the key of harmony in word and act the key that counterbalances the cause and the effect and leaves no further room for karmic action because in the heart is really what we're tested in our very core ethics shila creates harmony controlling those negative reactions to life next is shanti patience sweet that not can ruffle relates to netzach we need patience when we deal with our mind our mind is a great animal a great beast and its distractions and thoughts keep us jumping from association to association and not understanding who we are in our fundamental depth drag indifference to pleasure and to pain illusion conquered truth alone perceived this relates to malkut the physical world because in life we have to be indifferent good or bad 
happiness and sorrow, pleasure and pain are temporary. These things don't last. And why be attached? The virtue of Malkut is indifference, not apathy, but equanimity, neutrality, not being tossed around by good or bad, but being in the middle. Virya, the dauntless energy that fights its way to the supernal truth out of the mire of the lies terrestrial. This is Tifereth, willpower. The real beauty of the soul is diligence, not merely of keeping a job or having a career, although that's useful and we need it. But the virya, the dauntless energy of Tifereth that we need, the diligence that we need, is one that is willing to fight spiritually and to make changes and to try again and again and to strive in the way of God. Dhyana, whose golden gate once opened leads the Narjal, the initiate, toward the realm of Sat, the Absolute. Sat, eternal, and its ceaseless contemplation. Dhyana, as we were hinting at, is Gibura, the Divine Soul. So, in meditation, we learn to concentrate, and then we extract knowledge. We can use our visualization, our imagination, our perception to understand the essence of a given thing. And that is real meditation. It's a state of being. And Gebura relates to dhyana, meditation itself. And lastly, pranya, the key to which makes of a man a god, creating in him a bodhisattva, son of the dhyanis. This relates to chesed, the inner being, the spirit, pranya. So with meditation, what we want to do is to embody these virtues, to develop them. So that by understanding these principles, we control our body, our energies, our emotions, our mind, our will. And this control doesn't mean repression, restriction. It means understanding how they all function together, how they interrelate. So that when our will is serene, it knows how to apply itself to anything and to understand the heart of reality, we can extract new wisdom through the mirror of our consciousness to understand the depths of anything. So this is a method or these are principles that help us in terms of our psychological work. We'll explain them in synthesis. The first is dana, generosity. So the voice of the silence emphasizes that in the beginning of any spiritual path, when we are learning about generosity and kindness, that obviously it's, you know, very easy. You know, we become inspired to want to practice, you know, and become a spiritual person. We're joyed by the beauty and depth of the great initiates, what they wrote, especially from the scriptures. They have a lot of deep emotional power because they're generated from a state of being that is transcendent. You know, individuals who fully perfected that quality of themselves and were able to express the generosity of God, the compassion of divinity. This is dana. This is the spirit of religion. To give regardless of one's self and to be in service of others 
despite our needs. Obviously, there's a balancing act of, you know, in our modern culture, we like to talk about self-care, which is important. But the attitude of a bodhisattva is that other people take precedent. Charity is like a, is a fountain. And that attitude of rich compassion is born when we work with transmutation, especially the power of life. This is the beginning of religion, you know, real religion. The beginning of the path we talk about is the work with the Holy Spirit. Because it is the power of Genesis, the power of life. The voice of the silence explains the following, corroborating these points. Armed with the key of charity, of love and tender mercy, thou art secure before the gate of Dana, the gate that standeth at the entrance of the path. Behold, O happy pilgrim, the portal that faces thee is high and wide, seems easy of access. The road that leads there through us through is straight and smooth and green. Tis like a sunny glade in the dark forest depths, a spot on earth mirrored from Amitabha's paradise. There nightingales of hope and birds of radiant plumage sing perched in green bowers, chanting success to fearless pilgrims. They sing of Bodhisattva's virtues five, the fivefold source of Bodhi power, and of the seven steps in knowledge. A lot of times in the Quran you find images of verdant leaves and crops and beautiful flowers. Land of milk and honey, paradises. All those images in the Bible of lush forests and vegetation, flowers and seen in dreams is a symbol of the flowering of the soul. You see that in your visions, you're being shown like a rose or a lotus born from the mud. You find the purity of the consciousness and it flowers radiant and pure as we extract the mud, which is why we have ethics. Sheila. This is where the path gets difficult because as we're exploring ourselves, we find that we have many vices. What we need in this level of discipline is understanding the code and conduct of the initiates, the examples of the great prophets, because they can help guide us in terms of our work. We need to learn from people who've done this, not merely from any physical group, but from you know, the scriptures, because they demonstrate a caliber of being which is possible for us. And so, the way that they reached those heights of realization was by controlling their animal mind. And to the second gate, the way is verdant too, but it is steep and winds uphill. Yea, to its rocky top, gray mists will overhang its rough and stony height and all be dark beyond. As it goes, the song of hope soundeth more feeble in the pilgrim's heart. The thrill of doubt is now upon him. His step less steady grows. Beware of this, O candidate. Beware of fear that spreadeth like the black and soundless wings of midnight bat between the moonlight of thy soul and thy great goal that loometh in the distance far away. Fear, O disciple, kills the will and stays all action. If lacking in the Sheila virtue, 
the pilgrim trips and karmic pebbles bruise his feet along the rocky path. It's important to emphasize that these steps are not merely plateaus in which we reach one level, we stay there and then we move on to the next. They're interpenetrating and related. They build on each other, they connect. And with ethics, really, ethics is like a armor. You know, in a moment of great crisis, we find that our own mind is reacting, our ego emerges and wants to dominate, wants to control us, wants to harm in any way. Sheila is when we look at that element and we watch. We don't feed it, we don't justify it, we don't repress it. We look. And the ethical response is when we understand intuitively what the right way of being is. And it just comes to you like when you're not thinking, you're not expecting it, but you're watching and you're understanding and you're getting data about that defect so that we can learn more about it. If we don't understand how the mind and the heart function and why they operate the way they do, we uh, will make mistakes. We won't gain enough insight to really eliminate that fault deeply. When we lack ethics in our life, we suffer because we make our situations worse. Obviously, there's no way to escape the pain of the path. In fact, what matters is voluntary efforts, you know, voluntary suffering, being willing to enter those challenging circumstances and not run away, but to learn intuitively the right answer. This leads into Kshanti, patience, because we need to be patient. We're not going to change overnight. I mean, becoming perfect like someone like Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad, great initiates, is a long process and we have to be willing to endure our own mistakes and to change. We have an image here of Samson from uh, Old Testament where I'll explain some verses from uh, John Milton, especially his Samson Agonisti. It's a great uh, work of literature in which we find his, uh, by his example, the need to patiently endure the sufferings of imprisonment and blindness. The voice of the silence explains, Be of sure foot, O candidate, in Kishanti's essence bathe thy soul. For now thou dost approach the portal of that name, the gate of fortitude and patience. Again, patience and ethics are like armor. They shield us when, you know, we're tempted. And in a sense, patience is almost like a bath, like you're cleansing yourself. You know, through patience possessing your souls. John Milton explained the following, corroborating these points. But patience is more off the exercise of saints, the trial of their fortitude, making them each his own deliverer and victor over all that tyranny or fortune can inflict.
it is impossible to really um, purify the psyche without facing those great ordeals. I know in initiation, we talk about facing challenges and circumstances that really test our character, you know, our state of mind. And in that state where we're boiling at 100 degrees Celsius, we feel like we're reaching a threshold. Like in a moment, we're going to maybe snap. Like maybe you feel anger arising or negative emotions with thoughts, words that want to express. And if we're watching this process, we see that, you know, part of us is trapped in anger. And in a sense, it's very overwhelming, it can be overpowering. But the key is to watch, to observe, and to remember God. As difficult as it may be. Patience is our own deliverance. And really, we have to be patient when we study ourselves because we see that we have elements that are contrary to this work. But it is patience that allows us to face any situation, any challenge, the tyranny of our own mind or misfortune. Because from the state of consciousness, we learn that Karma, circumstance is impermanent or situations are impermanent and that we have to face the consequences of our former actions to bear them willingly. Voluntary suffering, conscious works, take responsibility of our own actions and mistakes. Virag is indifference. We see that Buddha here is meditating with Mara's daughters who in the traditional mythology is the temptations of mind, heart, and sex. And these are not figures outside, but something psychological in us. How our own mind, our emotions, and our desires keep us uh, hypnotized or distracted. The virtue of Malkut, of Virag, indifference, is when we approach life, we awaken the consciousness, we observe, we are mindful, but we don't crave or want to reject the circumstances of existence. We face them and we're not either favoring or running away, but to be equanimitous. What good may come, we accept. What negativity comes, we accept. And our attitude does not change. It doesn't mean apathy. Like we don't feel anything like, oh, it doesn't matter. I don't care. You know, it's you know, not the point. I mean, that's living like a zombie in a sense, which is a state of dysphoria. It's not the state of indifference from the consciousness. Indifference means you can be happy or content regardless of what anyone else says and be passionate or compassionate regardless. There is still a dynamic range of conscious emotion and perception of feeling, but it's not driven by desire. It's serene. Here's what the voice of the silence emphasizes about this. Close not thine eyes, nor lose thy sight of Dorje. And a Dorje in Tibetan Buddhism is like a symbol of the Holy Eight. It's a scepter which is used in Buddhist rituals, symbol of man. 
the masculine sexual, sexual organ. Close not thine eyes, nor lose thy sight of Dorje, the scepter of command. Mara's arrows ever smite the man who has not reached Viraga. These arrows, arrows of Mara are precisely our own passions. You know, when our desires want to take control of our human machine, the intellect, the emotions, our motor movements, our instincts, or our sex. And if we're not watching the different functionalisms of those centers and how they all integrate and relate, we get pulled in multiple directions. Maybe our thoughts in one way, our emotions in another, our movements in one direction. And so these are like Mara's arrows. You know, the impressions of life hit us. We're constantly, usually just reacting. And we don't actually watch ourselves or understand why we react the way we do, except we kind of externalize. Instead, indifference is that separation where you're watching, you're in tune with life, but you transform the impressions. They no longer hit us and impact us in a way that makes us negative. We understand what's going on in the world. On path the fourth, the lightest breeze of passion or desire will stir the steady light upon the pure white walls of soul. So this emphasizes some points that Gurdjieff made about the five centers, especially. You know, we have the light of consciousness, which is observing through the three brains. We're trying to integrate those centers and make them a unity. We're conscious, conscious and concentrated in ourselves and we're watching and observing ourselves. It is a light, the light of perception within our human machine that is trying to operate the five centers or the three brains. And if we allow passion to interfere in any one of those centers, we lose that light. It gets tainted or corrupted and we get distracted. Indifference, virag, is the ability to watch, to see and observe and understand without being disturbed. It's strong the more we develop it, which is why the voice of the silence emphasizes, the smallest wave of longing or regret for Maya's gifts elusive, along with Antas Karana, the silver astral cord, the path that lies between thy spirit and thyself, the highway of sensations, the root arousers of Ankara, selfhood, a thought as fleeting as the lightning flash will make thee thy three prizes forfeit, the prizes thou hast won. So Blavatsky speaks a lot about the Antakarana thread, which is um, what connects the astral body to the physical body, especially when we're awake. And when we dream, the astral body has this core that connects it to the physical body, so that when we travel in those dimensions, we can always return to our vehicle through that cord. In a sense, the Antakarana thread is being described here as the path that lies between spirit and self, the internal and the external. In that the impressions of light that you receive are in a sense registered through our astral senses. You know, physically we can't point at our feelings, but we sense them. These are psychological senses, the, vehicle, the senses of the astral body that are permeating our physical body. And if we, in our physical life, do not transform the impressions of existence, whether it's, you know, for pleasure or pain, whatever it may be, we get hypnotized. 
and we don't see reality. In a sense, our perceptions of self, known as ahankara, are precisely the defects we experience, the self, pride, anger, laziness, whatever it may be. The self are all these uh, desires or impressions or states that are provoked by the circumstances of life. So if someone praises us, we feel pride emerge. And that pride is feeding on the sensations of pride. Or if it's for lust, sensations of lust, passion. Or fear, that wants security, that wants to run away from the impressions that there is uncertainty in our financial or social or, you know, marital relationships, whatever it may be. We perceive the sensations or impressions of life and our reactions bubble up. They sprout. They emerge in the five centers. And they're always trying to feed on certain sensations or impressions. But unless we watch this state willingly, we won't see the exchange or the process. Instead, we just kind of go with the flow. And if we do, if we're just thinking and thinking and feeling to whatever happens in life and not watching this, you know, a thought as fleeting as lightning, a lightning flash will take away really our energy, the prize, right? I mean, the prize is as we're watching ourselves, we're saving energy and we're building up a reservoir, psychologically speaking, not merely physically or sexually, but emotionally too, we have energy mentally as well. And if we're constantly feeding our desires, then we deplete our mind, our heart, our body. And so indifference teaches us to be sealed, hermetically sealed, to not let away the precious energies of our psyche so that we can awaken more perception. So the pro uh, obviously this path is very demanding as it states here. Stern and exacting is the virtue of viraga, if thou its path wouldst master, thou must keep thy mind and thy perceptions far freer than before from killing action. Meaning, real action is spontaneous, intuitive, novel, in the moment. Doesn't mean to be impulsive. It means to know how to respond to any situation with wisdom and understanding. Thou hast to saturate thyself with pure alaya, the universal soul, become as one with nature's soul thought. At one with it, thou art invincible. In separation, thou becomest the playground of Samvriti, which is a conventional truth understood through the senses, origin of all the world's delusions. So what does it mean to be saturated with pure alaya? Practically in our work, it means to be mindful, be alert. Be conscious. That pure soul, that universal soul, is compassion. It is Christ, state of being. And if we wish to be, in a sense, invincible, psychologically speaking, spiritually speaking, it's important that we remember God, the presence of divinity in our heart, moment by moment observing ourselves, remembering a state of clarity and compassion and patience and wisdom, endurance, 
Otherwise, if we, you know, in a sense, lose our connection in a moment of great trial, we say something we regret, or we have become angry or fearful, you know, and a lot of pain, we feel the pain of that, obviously, the remorse. To be invincible means to not be separated from divinity, because divinity is the source of real power, of real being. Otherwise, we become a playground. You know, our intellect, our emotions, our movements, our centers just pull us in whatever direction. So we're kind of adrift. But self-remembrance keeps us in a unitary state. Virya, diligence. Virya literally means warrior. This is the diligence or willpower needed, especially in meditation, to concentrate. You know, focus on one thing, unwaveringly, without distraction. That is the essence of real willpower or Tifereth and the Kabbalah. Concentration, serene observation. It is the power of a spiritual warrior. It is the faculty that allows us to apply ourselves spiritually to any endeavor. And in a sense, this is all depicted in the Mahabharata. We see Arjuna speaking to Krishna, the Hindu Christ, where he is told on the battlefield that he has to confront all his family members, his loved ones, who are symbols of his own desires, his passions. Obviously, in the beginning, he's fearful and says, I don't want to fight the ones I love. And psychologically, we face the same problem. We don't want to give up fear or pride or anger or resentment. We love that part of ourselves so much that we're not willing to fight it. It's evident when we have an argument with our loved ones or our spouse and we see something in us that is very overwhelming and powerful, maybe anger or pride. And we need willpower to even be willing to look, to look at the situation and even the pain that we cause. Willpower, virya, diligence, doesn't mean get up at 5 a.m. to meditate every day and go to work, work a hard job, be busy all day and distracted and doing multiple things. I know we live in the era of multitasking, but in a sense, this is not the diligence we're talking about. It's conscious diligence. Those moments in which we're very awake and we're seeing new things about ourselves and we're gathering data and we're willing to do that again and again. That is real virya, diligence. The fearless warrior, his precious lifeblood oozing from his wide and gaping wounds, will still attack the foe, drive him from out his stronghold, vanquish him, ere he himself expires. Act then, all ye who fail and suffer, act like him, and from the stronghold of your soul chase all your foes away, ambition, anger, hatred, e'en to the shadow of desire, when even you have failed. Most people who begin to study themselves will run away, you know, from the reality. But obviously the emphasis in the voice of the silence and in many religious scriptures is that a meditator is one who is willing to face again and again despite the feeling of wounds and and weakness and vulnerability to try again and again to strive because this path is not only for our own benefit but for others improving our communities 
And so diligence is the quality of the consciousness that is able to penetrate into the mind and to focus on that specifically so that we can extract wisdom and knowledge about the roots of our defects so that by understanding them we can remove them. Remember thou that fightest for man's liberation. Each failure is success and each sincere attempt wins its reward in time. The holy germs that sprout and grow unseen in the disciple's soul, their stalks wax strong each at each new trial. They bend like reeds but never break, nor can they ever be lost. But when the hour has struck, they blossom forth. So it's easy to, in the beginning, to maybe get discouraged. You know, we try these practices and we feel like we're not making changes. But the real results come with, you know, those tests and ordeals, in which we find that before when we would have broken in a moment of anger, we have, we bend like a reed. We're more flexible. We don't react as like we used to. Progress little by little. You know, flexibility and strength is born with time, with patience. These verses are emphasized in the Bhagavad Gita, especially, in which Arjuna receives advice from Krishna, especially. Encouragement. And that emphasizes really a holy war. You know, as emphasized in the Middle Eastern traditions, especially, but also in the Bhagavad Gita. Here are some things, words of encouragement given by Christ, the Hindu Krishna, in a verse from Sankhya Yoga. And that this path is an obligation upon us, a duty. Having regard to thy own duty, thou shouldst not waver, for there is nothing higher for a kshatriya of the military caste than a righteous war. Happy are the kshatriyas, O Arjuna, who are called upon to fight in such a battle that comes of itself as an open door to heaven. But if thou wilt not fight in this righteous war, then having abandoned thine duty and fame, thou shalt incur sin. People too will recount thy everlasting dishonor, and to one who has been honored, dishonor is worse than death. The greatest car warriors will think that thou hast withdrawn from the battle through fear, and thou wilt be lightly held by them who have thought much of thee. Thy enemies also, cavilling at thy power, will speak many abusive words. What is more painful than this? Slain thou wilt obtain heaven, victorious thou wilt enjoy the earth. Therefore stand up, O son of Kunti, which is the sacred feminine, resolve to fight. So in a many sense, this is explaining that any person who approaches religion, who has some you know, practical work and is making some changes, and realizes the value of the honor of this work. It's a grave downfall to go backwards because not only is our benefit and our own level of being inhibited, but we prevent other people from benefiting from us too. So it's a responsibility and that's why it's a challenge. You know, this is something not to be taken lightly. He says, you know, if you strive in this way or seek to enter it, be sure because there are consequences. So when we develop the ability to concentrate, to focus on one thing unwaveringly, sustainably, we enter what is known real dhyana, meditation. And dhyana is a state of being. So when we're able to focus and concentrate serenely on one thing and wait, we can visualize whatever it is we want to understand. Suddenly, images come, insights, perceptions. 
maybe through a vision or a dream, but also maybe just through an understanding. We understand something deeply about what we're trying to comprehend. This is dhyana. Meditation means to extract information from any phenomenon. In that way, it's like a mirror or like a vase that contains a beautiful light. And that light is our own being, the quality of perception itself, the ability to even see and understand. And so dhyana is described like in, this, in relationship to the divine soul. If you've read what Salman Vir explained about Geburah, Budi, he explains that this divine part of ourselves is like an alabaster vase in which the light of Hesed, the spirit, shines. The spirit is God and can express through our consciousness when we've set the parameters up by entering a state of serenity within our physical body, calming the energies, calming the heart, calming the mind, focusing our will, and entering in a state of meditation, then our inner being can enter through our imagination and show us visual things, teach us through dreams or visions. So he is the light that shines like in the alabaster vase, as explained here. The Dhyana gain is like an alabaster vase, white and transparent. Within there burns a steady golden fire, the flame of prana that radiates from Atman. Thou art that vase. Prana means profound wisdom. To immediately see something and understand it in the full depths. And Nya means knowledge, but Pra means beyond. To see beyond the limitations of our senses, our mind, our thoughts. And Atman is the spirit, has said. And we enter and resonate with that level of being when we have entered the prerequisite steps of serenity. In this way, we gain real experience, real knowledge about anything that we want. Which is why it's very different from just mere intellectual study, as explained here. Thou hast estranged thyself from objects of the senses, traveled on the path of seeing, on the path of hearing, and stand this in the light of knowledge. Thou hast now reached Tatiksha state, which is patience, forgiveness, and tolerance. So to go from the path of hearing the knowledge in order to see it for oneself. This is all emphasized in the Quran, in Surah Al-Nur, in which we find the same teaching. Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. The parable of His light is a niche wherein there is a lamp. The lamp is in a glass. The glass, as it were, a glittering star, lit from a blessed olive tree, neither eastern nor western, whose oil almost lights up, though fire should not touch it, light upon light. Allah guides to his light whomever he wishes. Allah draws parables for mankind, and Allah has knowledge of all things. The light of the heavens of the earth is our being, the ability to perceive and have insight and wisdom. And that light is in the lamp of, the, of Geburah, the spirit, or the divine soul, better said lit from a blessed olive tree. That olive tree is our tree of knowledge. And by working with the oil of the tree of knowledge, the creative energy, the sexual force, is how you have light, untouched by fire, meaning passion or lust. And it's light upon light because there are levels upon levels of being that we can experience in meditation related to this tree of life, degrees. And divinity draws to himself, whomever he wishes, through vision, through meditation, through experiences.
Lamas says, Pranya, wisdom. So real wisdom, as you know, we're able to focus and concentrate and to observe and receive images and meditation, we get an understanding. And the insight or understanding of a given phenomenon is pranya, related to the spirit. It is when we understand. It's the aha moment in which we get something really deeply, right? But imagine in a much more profound level. So some steps related to pranya in the voice of the silence emphasize, again, some ethical prerequisites. You know, the need to, you know, be compassionate. We receive in accordance with what we give. It's the law of divinity, reciprocity. In a sense, if we long for insight and understanding or, you know, blessings from divinity, we too have to do our part of whatever our capacities. You know, we have to be a part of our a community or maybe it's our job or career. We learn to give of whatever we're able to. And in accordance with what we give, we receive. In a way, we get insights from divinity as we're helping people at our capacities, which is why the Voice of the Silence teaches, know that the stream of superhuman knowledge and the Deva wisdom, the wisdom of divinity, the angels, thou hast one, must from thyself the channel of Alaya be poured forth into another bed. So it's not enough, as we said, about getting enlightenment for yourself or ourselves, because it's not about us. We have to learn to help our communities. We should strive to be a vehicle of divinity so that divinity can provide for others. Know, O Narjal, saint or glorified adept, thou of the secret path, its pure fresh waters must be used to sweet, sweeter make the ocean's bitter waves, that mighty sea of sorrow formed of the tears of men. Again, emphasizing these points, we want to make our knowledge practical, things that we understand and learn from meditation, so that we can improve our own state to improve our communities. In a sense, we're striving towards that Ain Soth, the star of Bethlehem, our inner, you know, monad, the truth, which means unity in Latin, the essence of the spirit, that star of our inner truth within the void. Alas, when thou, once thou hast become like the fixed star in highest heaven, that bright celestial orb must shine from out the spatial depths for all, save for itself, give light to all, but take from none. A very high ethical demand, you know, it's not easy to, you know, strive in this way because we have this ideal of divinity and their capacity as initiates and they're very rare, but obviously we're going to make mistakes, but we should strive regardless. Alas, considering on these points, when once thou hast become like the pure snow and mountain veils, cold and unfeeling to the touch, warm and protective to the sea that sleepeth deep beneath its bosom, tis now that snow which must receive the biting frost, the northern blasts, thus shielding from their sharp and cruel tooth the earth that holds the promised harvest, the harvest that will feed the hungry. Again, this goes back to indifference. So notice that the, par the paramitas interrelate. In terms of indifference, one must be not unfeeling, but in a sense, shielded from the suffering of life and maybe the negativity of humanity and to protect the seed, the soul, 
that can grow underneath the, this metaphor of the snow itself. And the snow, the snow obviously relates to um, chastity, the work of the sexual force, the purity of the psyche. And this seed is really the people in our life, our communities. Really, people have a seed of the soul within them, which can grow. And as we're striving in this path, we want to help nourish the soul of others and to shield them from pain. We do so through understanding of highest wisdom, prana, from experience. So what's interesting about the, the voice of the silence, especially towards the end of this scripture, is that Blavatsky touches on these paramitas to emphasize the psychology of the great masters of compassion and how they really embody these higher virtues. They do so not for themselves, but for others. They're known as the guardian wall. You know, those initiates who have really mastered the higher paths itself, who've reached their inner star, the Ain Sof, they come and they remain to help countless humanities through many ages. You know, we call them like beings like Sanat Kumara, you know, who's the organizer of the College of Initiates. You have Bhagavana Kliva, you have Moses, Buddha, many masters. Even Muhammad was described like a brick that finalized the house of um, the successive lineage of the prophets. You know, he is a brick in the guardian wall. Many, one master of many who are helping humanity in the internal planes. And that they stay and remain in order to teach us and help us internally, especially dooming themselves throughout many ages to help and guide. And obviously this is the goal that, you know, in this path we're striving towards, but, you know, obviously that's the heights, you know, just talking and, you know, the end goal, because we don't begin there. We, you know, we, we begin where we're at. Self-doomed to live through future kalpas or cosmic periods, unthanked and unperceived by man, wedged as a stone with countless other stones which form the guardian wall. Such is thy future if the seventh gate thou passest. Built by the hands of many masters of compassion, raised by their tortures, by their blood cemented, it shields mankind, since man is man, protecting it from further and far greater misery and sorrow. That is the height of real wisdom. In conclusion, we recommend you study a course given by Glorian Publishing. It's called The Path of the Bodhisattva. Some of what we explained with uh, this scripture was that, you know, Christianity and Buddhism have the same roots or the essence of their teachings emphasize the same knowledge and that by studying both traditions, we can better understand what Blavatsky taught and also how to understand the whole scope of the spiritual path so that we know the map. And these are some basic principles that can guide us in that way. You got questions feel free to ask when it said seven seventh gate in that last uh, slide is that referring to the tree getting past that seventh level and then you know getting to the above that yes yeah. so counting from the bottom up from malkut to hesed hesed will be the seventh gate and beyond that is 
you know, higher levels related to Christ. Yeah. You know. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, prana in a sense can relate to has said the spirit, but also even these higher sephiroth of the Trinity, because even beyond our own inner spirit, you know, the light of our inner most, we could say, our inner God, is levels and levels of light, as mentioned by the Quran, light upon light, yeah. degrees. Could you give an example of repression as opposed to just saying no to something? Good. Uh, maybe like for any vice, I guess, just smoking, drinking, eating ice cream. I think more than uh, eating ice cream, I think um, a good example, I think, would be uh, something like pride. You know, you're talking with a loved one, maybe such an example, your partner. And your partner says some criticisms, which are perfectly valid and objective. They're true. And if you're observing yourself, the impression emerges. And if you're watching, you see elements of pride or anger emerge. You feel maybe she's wrong. She shouldn't have said that. I don't deserve this. I'm angry, you know. How dare she say that to me? And you feel that in, boiling in yourself. And that's, you know, repressing would be, oh, I'm not feeling anything. Wanting not to look at it. Like you may feel the emotions boiling inside. And yet that part of us, which is, you know, on the threshold of, you know, being a perceptive and awake, we don't really register the full depth of the emotion. It's like we're only conscious of the surface in the sense like you look at a, an iceberg, right? In many ways, we don't even pay attention to how we're feeling unless we're, you know, really watching. We may think that we're not necessarily that mad. So let's say, uh, for, for example, let's say something like mainstream media to, to say, well, I'm not going to follow that because I know it, you know, it, it, it does something to me where, you know, you become more, e uh, your ego comes out. Is that, would that be something that, like to say, I don't want to, you know, look at that or watch that or do that? Is that the same thing as repression? Or? Can be, you know, you may have the ego of watching television and watching movies, but or the appetite to consume media or internet or whatever it may be. And merely just saying, oh, I'm not going to look at that. In a sense, this could be a common reaction. Or in the case of some people, lust. People may, in the beginning of our studies, you know, become inspired as single persons. Like, oh, I'm going to uh, practice transmutation, pranayama. And I'm going to dedicate myself to not being lustful anymore. Avoiding situations or maybe even just avoiding you know circumstances that you know before we may feel uncomfortable with could be a form of repression meaning not willing to look at you know those kind of circumstances or the reactions that are associated with them doesn't mean that we want to go looking for trouble on the other end of the spectrum or the other end of the pendulum where oh i gotta go look at you know pornography or lustful things or whatever so that i can conquer my lust you know that's in a sense is kind of fooling oneself. But repression is like you could be, you know, avoiding, right? Avoiding the situation and not really being willing to look at the truth when those circumstances do provoke those elements. Can I add on to this? I think with the cigarette example, but like you said, it can be applicable to many things. 
it starts off with you knowing that a part of you is curious. It does want to try, does want to indulge mainstream media, right? So maybe a part of you does want to know what's going on there. And repression is just pushing that down by willfully pushing that down and avoiding, but that's going to come out somewhere else, right? So you say no to the cigarette, you push that down. Nope, bad, 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 bad. I don't want that. And then later on you find yourself, you know, eating a tub of ice cream or doing some other thing because that tension, that psychic pressure of having repressed it. Whereas if you say no to the cigarette, but you still allow yourself to feel that desire and to see that desire in you and you're conscious of it, you're using the conscious observation of that desire in order to transform it. And thus you can retain and almost extract the energy out of that desire and purify it and kind of awaken your consciousness further through it versus the conscious avoidance of something just creates a psychic tension that then is going to come out somewhere else. In either case, you've lost the energy there through that desire. It just might not have happened here. It happens over, over there instead. But this skill to be able to consciously observe something and not act on it, I think it relates to the patience um, that was just talked about in this lecture, right? Um, Salman Bior talks about the need for a magician to forbear, to keep silent, to know how to suffer, to know how to die. And that's exactly what we feel in a situation where a temptation is there and we desire it, but we're holding firm with our consciousness. We're keeping a kind of spiritual integrity and we're observing what's happening inside of us without acting on it. Because as soon as we act on it, one way or another, pushing it down or indulging in it, we've lost that energy, we've lost that consciousness, we've gone further into unconscious behavior. But if we're there and we're observing it consciously, this kind of transformation of the impression occurs, which is what we're always talking about, right? And that's the magic, right? That's what the magician is doing, is extracting the energy out of his own unconscious mind and transforming it into a conscious substance that can be used for spiritual work and development. And all the paramitas work together to ensure that, you know, obviously we generate the spirit of altruism, of giving. We work with the creative energies to generate light in ourselves. Ethics is how we refine that light, remove our perception from anger, fear, lust, whatever it may be. And patience is the stability of the consciousness that knows how to look at life with equanimity and to endure suffering when it does arrive and not to act mistakenly. But obviously then willpower and meditation and wisdom relate to as we're cultivating a state of serenity when we sit down to meditate we can start to go deeper into our reactions in the day so that we can understand on a more fundamental level how are we repressing and how are we indulging because in the surface level we can get a sense but obviously to go to the most deep levels it's important to you know put aside the senses and go look within because there's a lot of depths to us that are operating without our conscious uh, control or awareness I see the tree has a card like downwards, like the duality of the tree. Sure. So if I, for example, cannot find patience, but if I focus, is there like a sephirot there? I think those are like clay pots, right? Yes. Um, the sephirot that uh, represents patience, if, if I focus on the opposite, does that 
um, also helps me to understand it. Because sometimes we talk about uh, these concepts that are very high, but I'm honestly, I'm more familiar with the opposite. Yeah, that's, that's all of us, you know, because um, if you really want to understand the virtue of patience, then yeah, understand anger. Look at the vices, and every vice has its, its opposite. Yeah. And with anger, its opposite is precisely this patience. And I believe the term that Volvatsky used was, you know, Kashanti is patience sweet. It's sweetness, you know. Sweetness is patience when someone comes at us aggressively and we respond with, you know, with love. Yeah, serenity. It's like you, you don't react, but you do respond with level-headedness. You endure the reactions in yourself or the, you know, the intensity of the emotions, but also the reactions of oneself that want to get angry or retaliate. And sweetness is that, that, you know, state of uh, patience. You understand that by looking at hell. You know, we have to look at the negative first so that you develop the virtues. It doesn't work the other way around. I mean, in a sense, it's important not just to meditate on our mistakes because that can make us very one-sided and very morbid because you look at your, we look at ourselves and say, oh my God, I'm angry, I'm proud, I'm lust, lustful. Um, you know, all these errors, like you can just go on forever. Um, but in that sense, by looking at those negative vices and comprehending and eliminating them, you know, with meditation, we learn to me eliminate those faults. You extract patience from anger and anger is like the cage it is, is broken. In that way, uh, you can also meditate on the virtues too. Like, you know, don't just meditate on anger, but meditate on the paramitas because they teach both sides of the spectrum of consciousness. And we want to invert this hell realms, these hell realms, this inverted sphere into its positive. And the roots of the tree of life are born by removing the roots of the tree of death. And back to the example of, I thought it was a good example when you're, let's say, in an argument with a loved one or, you know, your spouse. Uh, and it's not good to just be like, oh, I don't feel anything. And you just like crush it. But in that moment, you just want to like kind of absorb it and then try and have like a, a mindfulness to just say, okay, this is what I'm feeling in this moment. I'm going to try and let it pass so that I can you know, be more level-headed and respond and, you know, love without you know, hate or anger, is that kind of the, the route to go about it versus the repression where it's just like, I don't feel it, let me just step away, you know? I would say I, it'd be good to communicate. I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but this is what I'm feeling. Mm. And label, you know, talk about it and like express it. It's a threshold of actually, there's a fine line between not addressing it and then going all in, you know, that's a delicate balance. We can consciously experience those emotions when we're, you know, we're looking at them, observing them and approaching them with the essence, you know, the soul. And that means, you know, communicating what you're thinking. It's like, you know, that's, that's really the best thing is like being transparent because it's not good to bottle it up because it's going to explode. You know, better to let off the steam by saying, hey, I'm feeling a lot of anger right now. This is what I'm thinking. I'm not saying this is right, you know, but expressing it, talking about it and, you know, delicately, you know. Yeah, and I think that that's the beginning is 
seeing it. And sometimes if you're able to express it in a respectful way, that can help. But ultimately, the work we're trying to do is to take these heavy elements of the psyche and to transform them into the positive elements of the psyche. So taking the vices of anger and transform it into love. So in the beginning, you're, you're going to observe it and, and recognize it and say, okay, I see this is how I'm feeling. And it will pass, like you said. But if you don't go back later in meditation or in contemplation and really reflect on what was I feeling there? Where, what's the root of that anger? Where did that come from in this life and past lives maybe, if we, if we go back even further? What triggers that anger? What does that anger really want? And contemplating if I feed that, where will it get me? And little by little, the consciousness of that anger and its quality and its shape will start to break you out of it, right? Because as you become more aware of what it is, your own remorse and your own conscience will start to be like, yeah, that's not really as justified as I felt in the moment. That's actually something that I don't really feel a desire for. I don't really feel an attraction to. And so you can kind of reclaim that psychic energy, as I mentioned earlier, and take it back. But if we're not doing that work later on to go back and revisit the kind of little nuggets that we found throughout the day um, that came up within us, then they will just continue to emerge and emerge and emerge and it'll be constantly having to hold it, observe it, let it pass every single day. And, and that's not really our goal, although that's better maybe than just indulging in anger and feeding it more and more. Our goal is really to go deeply into it, to kind of dissect it, to comprehend it with consciousness and let divinity teach us about it and then to be free of it so that we enter those situations, as was mentioned earlier, and we respond completely differently because that's no longer an element in our psyche. Now we've developed a virtue by extracting the energy out of that vice. And so now we have love and patience where before we felt anger. It's like doing alchemy, right? Exactly, it is alchemy. Uh, the, the substance that is not transformed and then mm -hmm. when we meditate, it's like the transforming process. Yeah. Until we have like this gold yes so when you realize that you need the lead in order to create the gold in a sense then you're looking for the lead everywhere you're saying yeah. where is the next little nugget of lead that i'm going to find come out of me in reaction to somebody or something and that's my chance that's my chance to apply my conscious will and to transform that into my gold we can't actually develop our psyche spiritually we can't develop our soul without the lead without the defects because we need them to understand and to strengthen ourselves we need something that we are resisting something that we are overcoming to develop the muscle of the soul and we also extract certain materials out of them which we purify through that transformation of impressions and so that is exactly alchemy as you mentioned and suddenly we want to find all of those things and work on them and comprehend them because we know that the great gift we get at the end is the spiritual gold, you know, the soul. Um, so years ago, before I encountered these teachings, I always thought the ego just meant someone saying, oh, I'm the best. Like, I, I never knew what the ego really meant, like the attachments, and especially after like reading the books uh, and coming to these classes you you realize that like I, I realize that like my ego like it really is 97 percent ego and when i get into conversations like with people whether it be family members or work 
now I'm starting to see, like, in retrospect, I'm starting to see, like, everything that I'm saying is ego. And it gets almost overwhelming. And then you're noticing it from other people. It goes back to, like, what Shakespeare says, where he's like, uh, we're all, what did he say? We're all actors. All the world's a stage yeah, and every player but half an hour. What he means by that. So, that being said, now that it becomes very overwhelming, put it number one, but isn't it, now I'm just starting to realize it's just best to be silent. About, and unless, like, speak, speak only when spoken to. Speak only when necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's hard to do. Everything is based in ego. And uh, silence is golden, but it's also necessary to know when to speak. And knowing to do that, how to do that requires intuition. You know, listening more to our essence. Because your heart will tell you when to act and how to act appropriately and in what way. But because we're very disconnected in our three brains, our five centers, we tend to get an intuition or a hunch and our mind pulls us. We get pulled in a different direction. And part of the work is that we're trying to, you know, integrate all the parts of ourselves so that everything is working in a unity. And that only happens when we're conserving energy. And in the beginning, it could be good, especially, you know, if we're very prone to arguments, cut it off for a while, like you said, like you maybe even uh, not engage in so many arguments or discussions, save your energy. And you'll find that like a vow of silence on a retreat, you start to see new things because you're no longer investing so much energy into the personality. But yeah, it's overwhelming, especially, but, um, you know, patiently we can, you know, gain more stability. And that happens as we're, you know, implementing the paramitas, you know, working with all seven, you know, in Buddhism, they say six, but you know, the ones I gave today were seven in total, including indifference, virag, you know, and study those virtues, study what that looks like in yourself, you know, in your daily life. That's the important thing because, you know, those are dynamic living things. And maybe the diligent thing to do is to, you know, understand other people better or understand and work harder at, you know, our own reactions, especially. Could you expand a little bit more on the word indifference in that? Because that was a confusing part of it. When you think of indifference, you think of, you think of apathy, you think of like, I right. know, I'm indifferent, I don't care about it. But right. in reality, it's like carrying on a different level. Yeah. Okay. It's like being ser like serenity, mm -hmm. right? Because apathy is actually uh, like not spiritual. It's like spirit. a nihilistic. Way. Yeah. So and like serenity to stay calm. And um, I remember this Aztec um, a story that says that like the warrior is sitting down and they are throwing arrows against him and he's just sitting down, right? doesn't mean not caring, but it means that we're integrated. So usually with indifference, it can mean like a dullness, like you don't feel. But serenity is a superior state of feeling or compassion, which is not pulled by impressions. You know, people could be saying awful things, but we still are calm and we have love for them. But uh, it's a delicate thing because so much of our attention tends to be dispersed. You know, we'll have our 
senses hyperactive and our personality active in the sense that like usually our go-to mechanically is you know just to react or to get sucked in and to give our energy into a circumstance but like serenity where it's not that you have distance in terms of caring but you have distance in terms of your energy where you know you're integrated or you're observing and you have that you maintain your your patience and your love for them regardless of what they see or do because identification is like you know you know in a moment of anger you just say what you're thinking and feeling and you feel depleted whereas you know indifference is when you see the anger emerging and you have enough serenity and control to see it for what it is and to not act on it you know it doesn't mean we're pushing and fighting and struggling but you're, we're comprehending it you know to an initial degree but obviously with meditation we have to go deeper so that we can extract the roots well and i think too there's a good example of this because the indifference of a spiritual virtue is transcendent rather than like the apathy which is kind of dull and dead and if you think about being trapped within our ego our false self it's like having a small glass of water and putting one tablespoon of salt in there and so that salt you know you react to it right because you're trapped in a small mind but when you have this transcendent quality of mind which sees all things in their cosmic proper places and so that's like a great a great lake and you dump one teaspoon of salt into that lake you know you're going to feel that but you also see it in perspective and you know that you don't have to react to it right would you relate that to like the laws of polarity with hermeticism where you have, you know, hot and cold and you, you know, um, where it's like we, we rise above taking sides. Is that the same like concept part of indifference? Because if you notice, there's like a lot of things thrown at us where they want to like, there's like a divide and conquer, you know, where we're divided on so many different issues. And it's really just rising above the, the, the laws of polarity. It's a pendulum. The mind works in extremes. Left, right, good, bad, yes, no. Politically, same thing. You know, socially, more importantly, in terms of our reactions, we have a pendulum effect. You know, we're attached, we're craving, or we're reverting, you know, repressing. And we don't really see that there's a middle ground. You know, the middle is serenity equanimity it's like being anchored in which you can see all the diverse impressions of your mind swinging to and fro in a chaotic way but serenity in the beginning especially is an insight or a clarity that we understand that we're not either extreme and that they are parts of us but they don't predominate you know they're not really the full expression of who we are they're like surging parts of a wave in an ocean from the bottom and you can sense enough of the current that's running underneath our perception. So with the law of hermeticism and the seven principles, I mean, um, yeah, um, you know, when we talk about especially the law of duality that especially we synthesize with the tree of life, obviously the virtues are these top spheres. And those are cultivated, again, as we're removing the roots of the tree of death, klipot. So there's that duality there, heaven, hell, in a sense, in terms of a spectrum of consciousness. The way to 
learn to develop those higher virtues is precisely by exploring hell, you know, our own mind. And the only way we can do that clearly is we're not identified by extremes, you know, not willing to just justify or to repress or to label this is a bad, this is bad, this is a defect. Because that's just another element of the mind that's fear. And that's chaos, you know. I know we organize this lower glyphs of the klipoth in terms of a ten, you know, nine spheres, like, you know, a clear structure. But we know from experience that hell isn't like that. We just use this image to have some kind of concept of, you know, certain chaotic qualities in us. It's really a, you know, a confusion. It's, it's the definition of hell. The only way to look at the roots of our defects is with equanimity. You know, we have enough serenity that we don't get disturbed by what we see. Because as soon as we get fearful or, you know, afraid or we want to invest ourselves into it, we're directing our energy into it. And it's like the cage gets stronger in a sense. But serenity is like you're looking, you're watching, and you're not wavering in your attention. You're able to observe it without being disturbed. You know, and that's the higher qualities we're talking about in relation to meditation and concentration. Focus on one thing, don't get distracted at what you're looking at, and not get bothered. And that's, in a sense, indifference, in a spiritual sense. It doesn't mean that we don't experience a type of remorse or happiness. And it's strange, because in our studies we say that uh, the greatest joy of the Gnostic is the discovery of one of his or her defects. And I know in many cases we can see our defects and become, you know, really ashamed. You know, we have a lot of remorse. We may tell ourselves, that's a horrible part of myself. I wish I didn't feel that. Again, that's also just shame. That's another, that can be another defect. But remorse is a very different quality. The soul that knows in a state of equanimity that we are responsible for creating this, you know, aberration. But with serenity, you know, with the nine stages of concentration and stabilizing our perception and sustaining it more and more, we have more strength by which to again and again continually approach in a state of balance every defect that we discover. And there is a certain joy to that in the soul because we realize the way out. But, you know, with patience, right? Um, yeah, the seven principles, again, I think... Um, you know, the number seven numerically relates to, again, those seven paramitas we talked about, the seven spheres of the tree of life, um, seven, seven virtues, seven vices. But there are connections there too. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. 
May all beings be in peace.